0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So today we are diving into the text of Exodus itself, the book of Exodus. So you can open your Bibles in Exodus chapter 1, uh, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Last week, I did an overview message of the book of Exodus and tried to locate Exodus within the whole context of the canon of Scripture, and we saw how the Exodus is not only an historical event, it is that, but not just an historical event, but it also became the language and the image and the metaphor that's that's used to shape so much of the rest of the Bible and the biblical story. So the Exodus imagery becomes the dominant metaphor for Israel's returning from exile, a way of understanding that as a new exodus. It becomes the backdrop to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus who leads us in this new exodus by going through a new exodus himself as the new Israel. And the exodus even becomes the language and imagery, some of the language and imagery, around the new creation. And the final Exodus that Christ will lead us on when he calls us home into the new heavens and the new earth, out of the brokenness of this world, into the freedom of the new creation. And the Exodus language crops up again in Revelation. So that's really what I wanted to show, is that the the scriptures are full of Exodus imagery. And you may well want to, as you're reading the Bible, particularly the Gospels, but also the Psalms in the Old Testament, look and listen for the Exodus language language around deliverance, language around God's great power and mighty hand leading His people. Pretty much any time you see the word redemption in the Bible, you're, you're dealing with Exodus language. Uh, and so listen for it, and it will just give you that beautiful interplay of Old Testament, New Testament, the richness of the biblical story, and the way the Exodus becomes so important for the whole story of Scripture. So we kind of got the wide-angle vision last week. Today we're going to dive into the text in Exodus chapter 1, and I'll read this chapter for us, and then we'll Uh, make some observations. Exodus 1 verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Isaac, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. "'Look,' he said to his people, "'the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. "'Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, "'or they will become even more numerous, "'and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies.' fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly." The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? So as we uh, get our bearings here and just get some perspective on the book of Exodus and Exodus 1, let me, let me offer you this analogy. Just think for a minute of a, of a typical TV drama, maybe a TV program that you like, and let's say that this TV drama is five seasons long. Okay, So you get to the end of season one, and most of the tension's resolved, the story's kind of drawn to a conclusion, but then there's some new questions introduced. And right in that last episode of season one, There's something happens, there's a new challenge, there's a new crisis, and it leaves it wide open for season two. Season two comes along, picks up the story, and begins moving the action in a new direction. You can see where I'm going with this, aren't you? I want you to think about Exodus, the book of Exodus, like season two in a five-season show called the Torah. It's probably not going to come to the big screen or even the small screen anytime soon, right? Because much as season two would be very exciting, season three, Leviticus, would be a little bit hard going, Uh, I don't know how that could possibly be made into a TV series. But Exodus functions as the second book in a set of five books called the Torah or the books of Moses, the books of the law, or the Pentateuch is another name. Pent meaning five. And it's very important to see Exodus in continuity with that unit of scripture, the Torah. It's a contained unit and Exodus functions in continuity with what has come before Genesis and what comes after Leviticus. And we need to read it that way because when you look at the very first word in the book of Exodus you don't quite pick this up from the English but the first word in Exodus Exodus 1 1 it's the Hebrew equivalent of the word and you're never supposed to start a story with the word and but that's how Exodus starts and so what does that tell you this is not a new story it's not the beginning of a story this is the continuation Of a story that has already been set in motion by Genesis and Exodus in the first five verses recaps some of the critical information uh, from Genesis that's going to be relevant this is a little bit like these first five verses are a little bit like the beginning of the TV show where you hear someone say previously on such and such a show that's what you've got in the first five verses so it recaps some critical information from Genesis that Joseph and his brothers his 11 brothers the twelve sons of Jacob also called Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, who would also then become the heads of the 12 tribes, they have migrated from Canaan to Egypt. And they're now living in Egypt with their dad peacefully. They're living well. They're living in safety. They're living under the benevolence of a kind pharaoh, a kind king who is favorably disposed towards them at this stage. That's really how Genesis ends, with the clan of Jacob living living well in Egypt. And the final scene in Genesis is the death of Joseph. And Joseph says to his brothers, just before he dies, he says, now, when I've died, I want you to gather my bones. And when you finally leave Egypt, he's reminding him of that promise, you remember, that God had made to Abraham? He says, when you finally leave Egypt, it's going to happen one day, take my bones with you. And they do. As the story plays out, they take the bones of Joseph on their journey so there is this promise in the text there's this hint there that egypt is not the final destination even when life was going well for them in egypt there's a sense that they've come from canaan to egypt and they're going to be heading back again this is what god has promised this is the covenant that god has made so genesis uh, exodus opens with that recapping of information and then in verse 6 of chapter 1 we start to move the story forward joseph and all his brothers And all that generation died. But the Israelites, the Hebrews that extended out, the clan that kept on growing, they became extremely numerous in the land of Egypt. They became a a, a massive population so that the Bible says the land was full of them. And look at the words that are used to describe this huge population of Hebrew people. Verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. Now, where have you heard those words before? Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. Genesis, right? This is the first of many hints in the book of Exodus that there's a bigger story going on here. This is not just a story about Israel. This is the creation mandate that God had given to humanity, isn't it? Commission to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Same words. And now here are the Israelites doing exactly that, being fruitful and multiplying throughout the land. They are continuing the creation calling that God originally gave them. And we're getting this indication here that what God is doing in the big picture is getting his project back on track, so to speak. He's getting his story back on track after it's kind of been derailed by sin, entering the story, wreaking havoc on humanity and all of creation. And now here's God saying, "No, I'm, I'm moving this forward. Once again, there's fruitfulness. Once again, you're going to multiply. There's a sense here. This is, this is, re- this is redemption and this is renewal. This is a story bigger than Israel. It's a story about God renewing humanity, God renewing creation. You've got to keep that in mind and you'll find all kinds of hints of this as we go through Exodus. So the Israelites became extremely numerous. The land was filled with them but then a new pharaoh came to power. And you have these chilling words, a new king came to power to whom Joseph meant nothing. Probably means not that he didn't know of Joseph but that The benevolence that the previous pharaoh had shown to Joseph and his family meant nothing to this pharaoh. This new pharaoh, we don't know who he was exactly, there's a few suggestions. One of the contenders is that he was Ramesses II, Ramesses the Great, one of the great political rulers of all all time, Uh, pretty fierce kind of guy, famous for his military conquests and also famous for his building projects, which kind of squares quite nicely with the idea that maybe this was the pharaoh under which the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites were slaves, because Ramesses too did a whole lot of construction work. But we don't know for sure who this pharaoh was, and he's not named in the text, which is interesting. He's never given a name, just the king or just pharaoh. But either way, this pharaoh looked at the enormous population of Hebrews, and he did not see them kindly. He saw them as a threat. He saw them as a people who were likely to rise up against the Egyptian dynasty or likely to join Egypt's enemies and fight against them. So he was threatened by them and Pharaoh begins to introduce three policies, one after another, three policies to control the Hebrews, to contain them and eventually to destroy them. His first policy is to consign them to slave labor. This is well known as part of the story that Pharaoh reduced the Hebrew people to slaves. They became slave workers in the fields, and they were responsible for building cities. And two of the cities are named. One of them is called Ramesses, Python and Ramesses, which makes you think it may well have been Ramesses II, who was the pharaoh in charge. Archaeologists think they may have found that city, the city of Ramesses that the Hebrew people built. And if it is the same city that archaeologists think they've found, uh, a couple of interesting facts about that are, one, there was a huge temple there in the city of Ramesses. Uh, a temple to all the Egyptian gods, all these, this plethora of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And also in Ramesses, there were huge munitions warehouses, these huge factories that were used for storing and making Egyptian weapons. So imagine for a minute what this would have been like for the Hebrews, for the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. Not only did they suddenly find themselves, within the space of a generation, reduced from a people favored in the land, to a people, slaves within the land. But now they're building a city, and they're having to build this temple, which is going to be for the worship of pagan gods, not Yahweh, but other pagan gods. They've got to build this temple, forced to do that. And they've got to build these factories that are going to make the very weapons that will be used against them if they get out of line, the very weapons that eventually the Egyptians pursue the Israelites with. This must have been brutal for the Israelites. This must have been agonizing stuff for them. But the policy fails. If it was designed to control the Hebrews and in some way restrict their number, it fails. And the, and the Hebrews become even more numerous. They continue their creation mandate. They continue to be fruitful. They continue to multiply. And so Pharaoh introduces policy number two. He summons the midwives. And um, there's a few midwives now. church, hey? This is your text, all right? This is the one. You've got to frame this text should be embroidered on the walls of your homes. Uh, These midwives, Shipra and Puah, and probably they are the two midwife directors of a whole community of midwives that would have operated within Israel at the time. Obviously, a lot more than two would have been needed. But these are the leading midwives. Pharaoh calls them and says, what I want you to do is, as you're delivering the Hebrew babies, if it's a boy, I want you to kill him. If it's a girl, you can let her live. Just obvious population control going on here. But these midwives are incredible and wonderful models of faith in the Scriptures. This is the only time we hear of them. They, they disappear now. They're not mentioned again for the rest of the story, but they are just wonderful models of women of faith here who say to themselves, not directly to Pharaoh, but they decide they're not going to go through with this. They undertake civil disobedience. They refuse to kill these Hebrew babies. And then they spin a story to Pharaoh to cover their tracks, which I think in the course of biblical history is perfectly justified. These are women of courage. They're women of faith. They show us what faith is like, don't they? I mean, as you read Exodus, this is the kind of faith God's asking for from his people. It's the kind of faith that will trust in spite of circumstances, in spite of hopelessness, in spite of what's going on, they will trust and they will act courageously and walk in faith no matter what's going on. This is Shipra and Pua. And these are wonderful women. It's a model of faith right here in the darkness of Exodus chapter 1. And so Pharaoh's second policy fails. Uh, he doesn't manage to contain the Hebrew population that way either. And so he undertakes this third policy. Verse 22, it's the most chilling verse of the chapter. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And by the time you get to this point, it's open genocide. There's no secrets anymore. There's no just getting the midwives alone in a room. This is open. Pharaoh doesn't just say this to a few people. He says this to all his people. Notice the language. It's open. Clearly, his intentions publicly are to destroy the Israelite people. And so he commands his forces, his soldiers would have gone through the land, through the Hebrew homes, taken the babies and they would have been thrown into the Nile. And sadly, there's no indication here that this policy failed. There's no indication here that this didn't happen. Probably a number of Hebrew baby boys were taken from their families and thrown into the Nile River. Not everybody experienced what Moses and his family experienced. You need to also sit with the reality that many families lost children exactly that way. And the horror that must have been for those mums and dads. So this is a time in the early history of Israel, before they are even a nation, when they must have just wondered where on earth God was and what on earth God was doing. They didn't have Exodus 2, they didn't have the rest of the Bible. What they had was this, what they had was oppression and genocide targeted against them and blatant murder of their babies. That's what they, this is real life. This really happened. And they had these promises that God had made to Abraham that he would make them an exceedingly numerous people. What they experienced was the seeming reversal of that. Their population was being undone. Their population was being decimated. What happened to being as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore? They are having their babies taken from them. It seems like the promise is working backwards. It seems like the covenant is working backwards. Israel in this time experienced the profound absence of God. All they experienced was this blackness and darkness. I'm sure they prayed. I'm sure they cried out. I'm sure they groaned under their oppression. And yet God at this point is silent. We think of Exodus as the story when God delivers. We think of the great intervention, the time when God shows up, the burning bush, the Red Sea, all of that. And all of that's coming, but you can't get to that without Exodus 1, when God is silent. And in this chapter, there is a profound absence of God. He's barely even mentioned. God's barely even mentioned in this chapter. He doesn't say anything. And the only time He's seen as acting is when He gives the midwives families of their own, which is significant. But relative to the rest of the book, God is profoundly uninvolved here, seemingly indifferent to the plight of his people. And we can start drawing some connections, can't we, to our lives at this point? I mean, we live in a different time and place under very different circumstances, but this experience of God's absence is ubiquitous. This, we all feel this, don't we, from time to time, in some way or another, often in suffering, often in difficulties, in the hardships of life, and we pray for an answer to prayer we pray for a miracle we pray for healing we pray for help we pray for intervention we pray for god to show up and we get nothing we get silence we feel like the prayers are just bouncing off the roof but oft i think the hardest experience of god's absence is the times when it just seems to be for no reason at all when life is actually going fairly well you're not entangled in some hideous sin you're just carrying on with life but for some reason god just seems distant and this may be your experience, that God just seems a million miles away. You, you try praying and it doesn't seem to do anything. You can't sense God's presence. You can't feel your faith. You don't have really any kind of connection to God. You don't really have any experience. And you're just left wondering, what is this? You try some of the things that you've done in the past when you've really sensed God's presence. The scriptures you've gone to, the places you've visited, the people you've been with, the, the prayers you've tried to pray. And the things in the past where you've had that sense of God's presence, they don't work. And you're just left in this kind of nothing void. It's just, God, why won't you just give me some some reminder? Give me a sign that you're with me. But we don't get any of that so often. Often for long periods of time. Often this can be sustained in people's lives, a sense of God's absence for years sometimes. So we can relate on some level, can't we, to the experience of the Israelites. Even though our circumstances are different, we all experience the absence of God, the unanswered prayers the distance that just seems to be there between us and God, and maybe you're experiencing that today. This is where it's so important to put Exodus 1 in the context of the whole story of Exodus and the whole story of Scripture. Exodus 1 is the absence of God. No question. But think for a minute about the final chapter of Exodus, Exodus 40. You know what that's about? It's about the glory of God filling the temple, filling the tabernacle. It's this picture of the presence of God filling the space that God had designated. He wasn't content to even lead his people by fire and cloud. By the end of Exodus, he wants more than that, and God himself comes down to dwell right in the midst of the camp of Israel. So great is his desire to be with his people, he incarnates himself among them. It's the first incarnation in the Bible. Not Jesus, but God, Yahweh, here in the Old Testament, incarnating himself in the tabernacle. From one perspective, the whole story of Exodus can be read as as a movement from absence to presence. From God's absence and apparent uninvolvement through to deep presence, abiding and journeying with his people. That's the trajectory of the book. And that's the trajectory of the whole biblical story because it doesn't end with the tabernacle, does it? you know the rest of the story god didn't just plan to to build a tabernacle for his presence ultimately god became a tabernacle ultimately in jesus god became a living tabernacle this is john one the word became flesh and tabernacled among us dwelt among us pitched his tent among us and became one of us Jesus is the fullness of the presence of God. God's desire to be with us is that great that He became embodied in human form. Jesus was the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelt, physically, bodily, on earth. And yet here is the irony with Jesus. He's the one who truly embodies the presence of God in a a greater way than any of us because He is divine and is the Son of God. And yet Jesus is the one who on the cross experiences the absolute absence Of God. There's a real irony here. Fullness of the presence of God, and yet you get to the cross and you see utter God-forsakenness. Jesus cries out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences God's presence like we never will, but he also experiences God's abandonment in a way that we never will. The theologian Miroslav Volf says this about the cross. Jesus' greatest agony was not that he suffered. Suffering can be endured, even embraced, if it brings desired fruit, as the experience of giving birth illustrates. What turned the pain of suffering into agony was the abandonment. Jesus was abandoned by the people who trusted in him and by the God in whom he trusted. Jesus experienced the abandonment, the God-forsakenness on the cross devoid of God's rescuing and helping presence. But in the flow of the biblical story, what we see is that that happened for us, that it's precisely because of Jesus, God-forsakenness on the cross, that we have the certainty of God's presence with us now, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what our emotions tell us. Is that great Newsboys song? I used to listen to it a bit. The chorus says, "'I'm forgiven because you were forsaken.'" I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit lives within me because you died and rose again. That's the heart of it, that's good theology that Jesus was forsaken so that you and I could be forgiven. He was abandoned by the Father, devoid of the presence of God, so that we could have the presence of God securely, permanently abiding in us in the form of the Spirit, so that we can claim the promise of Hebrews 13.5 where God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you one of the great promises of Scripture, the presence of God abiding with us, His people, forever in a permanent sense. And guess what? That promise in Hebrews thirteen five it's a quote from Deuteronomy. It's a quote from the Torah. This is what God said to His people Israel, Never will I leave you. On the cusp of the promised land, He said to them, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you when you go into the land. And here in the story of redemption, here we are as the community of God, and God is re-speaking that promise to us now, out of his covenant faithfulness to us saying, just as I never left my people, I was faithful to them. I will be faithful to you. My presence will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to neglect you ever. That's a a promise we need to learn to stand upon no matter how bad it gets in our lives, no matter how deep the suffering, no matter how deep the pit that we may be in, in spite of what our emotions and feelings are telling us, in spite of all the unanswered prayers, what we know to be true is that God will never leave us, will never forsake us. This is what he wanted Israel to understand, and this is what he wants us to understand. It's hard to live out of that, I know. That's truth, but it's hard to... Practice that. We know that God's with us, we know His presence is with us, and yet we have these times of just feeling completely abandoned, don't we? These times of just feeling absent, times of feeling distant from God. It's one thing to know that He's present with us, it's another thing to really be able to embrace it, really be able to live out of it. We started singing a new song here recently called I Am, and uh, we're going to sing it at the end of the service again. It's got that wonderful, simple line in the chorus. It says, I am holding on to you. And our worship leaders have explained well that that can be sung in two ways. In one sense, it's us saying to God, I'm holding on to you, God. In another sense, though, it's us hearing God say to us, I am holding on to you. In the middle of the storm, I am holding on to you. The other week we sung the song in church, and then I had a meeting after church. And I was on the way home. I was driving home, and I just really felt I needed to hear that song again. I needed to be reminded of that truth. I was feeling a bit distant, bit disconnected from God, and I was just thinking of the words of that song, song rolling around in my head. And I thought, man, I want to hear that track again. I didn't have it on my iPod. I didn't have it in a CD. So I did the next best thing and uh, turned on Radio Rema. And the second I turned on Radio Rema, I kid you not, that song just started. It was like pressing play on a stereo. Just the track just started. I am holding on to you. And it was a a moment for me of really hearing God speak that to me and say that to me. I am. I'm here. I'm in this car. I'm holding on to you. You don't feel it. Can't perceive it. I am holding on to you. In the middle of the storm, I am holding on. That is what is true in spite of what's going on inside, what's going on outside. Now, here's the question. Great as that moment was... What happens in the times you don't have that? What happens in the times you don't even get that little reminder? And you turn on Radio Rema and it's some other song you don't even like? What happens then? Because there's those times too, right? We've got to be careful. We don't just mooch off the, I've got to have the sign. I need the reminder. Because sometimes yes and sometimes no. Sometimes even that prayer goes unanswered. Let me offer this little story that might help. Our youngest son, Ezra, is just on the threshold of walking. Just, I think it's a week or two away maybe. And so he can stand up by himself. He's, he's all right. He can sort of steady himself like this. He loves it. He thinks he's, he's awesome. You know, Look at me. I can stand. Uh, and then he takes a step and falls over. And we're kind of trying to position ourselves just in front of him, a meter or so, putting our arms out, encouraging him towards us. And he can manage maybe one, maybe two steps, and then he topples over. But the one way in which he can walk is with his trolley. So he's got a trolley full of blocks, so it's weighted, and he can get on the floor with his trolley, and he's fine. He'll sort of walk, but he can only go in a straight line, so he just hits a wall, and then you've got to change his trolley direction, and then he's <laughs> off again, and he's, he's solid as a rock when he's on his trolley. He's all right there, but what we're having to do to try and get him to walk is take the trolley away and encourage him to walk, and I offer that to you just as an analogy to think about this idea of God's absence and presence. We are so easily dependent on emotions, experiences, and signs of the presence of God. And those are not bad things. The problem comes when we depend on those for the presence of God, for our faith, for our very relationship with God, and then they become like the trolley. They become the trolley of our emotions, experiences, and signs, and we can't walk without the trolley. That's not what God wants for us. What He wants us to do is learn to walk toward him in faith. What he wants us to do is learn to stand on our own two feet, as it were, always in dependence on God, but to be able to walk in faith. And sometimes that means taking the trolley away. So when you experience the absence of God's presence, when you have those times you can't perceive God and you really want the reminder that he's there, I really need to know that I'm forgiven. And it doesn't happen. Rather than saying, oh, there's something wrong with me, or maybe I'm not forgiven. Or maybe God's not here. What if you saw that as maybe God has taken away the trolley because he wants me to walk into his arms. And he wants me to walk by faith. He's told me what is true in his word. I don't need a certain feel. If I have the feeling, that's wonderful. But I don't want to depend on it because sometimes it'll be there and sometimes it won't. And I don't want to have a rollercoaster faith that depends on my physical, emotional, mental state at the time as a barometer of my relationship with God. It's an awful barometer of your relationship with God. Your emotions will go up and down depending on what you had for dinner last night. Don't use that as the measure of your faith. Sometimes God wants to take away the trolley so that we learn to walk by faith. It may even be a good thing that at times we don't have that sense of God's presence so that we have to stand on the revealed truth of Scripture that God is present and will never leave us, and has forgiven us. Again, the emotions can be a great gift. But what God wants to do in your life is bring you to maturity. And the kind of faith that always needs the trolley is not a mature faith. Ezra's not going to grow up if we keep on giving him the trolley every time. He's only going to grow up when he learns to walk one foot in front of the other. God wants you to move off the milk and onto the meat. God wants you to move from childishness to maturity in your faith. And one of the ways that he will do this in your life is by allowing you to go through times when you don't have the feeling, you don't have the experience, you don't have the sign. Those are hard times. But they are growing times. They are maturing. And if we can receive it as that, this is God maturing me and growing me. We can receive it as a gift. It's a a hard gift to receive but it can bring us to a place of deeper maturity. I've been thinking a lot recently about this experience that some Christian writers call the dark night of the soul. I don't know whether you've ever read anything on that or thought about it, but Christians through history have had this experience, and there seems to be a strange correlation where some of the people you'd consider to be spiritual giants, people who, who seem to walk closer to God than anyone else, they have this time in their life that has been described as a dark night of the soul, a time when they cannot sense God at all. Mother Teresa experienced this. She revealed, it was revealed in her, in her memoirs that came out after, after she died, that for much of her ministry in Calcutta, she couldn't have any sense or perception of God's presence. She describes it like a darkness, just couldn't really connect words, relate to God in any easy way. She just continued on out of a simple faith and a simple trust and a humble obedience, but she really lived in it like a spiritual darkness, a dark night of the soul. Men and women have gone through this. And slowly I think I'm coming to see this in a different way, that it's not any deficiency in them. It's not any deficiency in their faith. In fact, it's the opposite. It's God saying, I'm going to call you to even greater maturity. I'm going to build into you a faith so strong it can even withstand a dark night of the soul. And the only way to bring you to that point is to give you a dark night of the soul. It's painful. God doesn't like to see us have a sense of distance from Him, but what He desires is maturity in your life, depth of faith below the superficiality of your emotions, beneath the need for constant signs and reminders, beneath the buzz of the latest conference and the big high that we get and the big experience that we've got to have and we live off that until next year's conference or whatever it is. All those things can be good, but God wants to call you to a deeper faith than that, a more mature faith than that. And I ask myself the question, can my faith withstand a dark night of the soul if that came along? Because sooner or later it might. And I don't want my faith to explode if I have to go through a spiritual winter. I don't want my faith to come undone because I've been dependent on the trolley of experience and emotion. And then when that's taken away over a sustained time, I just, I collapse. I don't want that. I want to use the times that I have when I, when I do sense God's presence to ready me and steady me for the times when I don't. And God wants this for us. There's the Exodus 1 times, and you may be in those times right now. You may be in a spiritual winter right now. I want to simply encourage you, if you are, if you're in that space, you can't perceive God in any way. You just feel like you're a million miles away. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, with God, or with your faith at all. Yes, the evil one's going to tell you exactly the opposite of that. He'll try and convince you there's all kinds of things wrong and you're feeling this distance for a reason. That's where you've got to stand on the voice of truth. That's where you've got to read Hebrews 13.5 and speak it to your own soul. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's a promise. And if you're feeling the absence of God, rather than feeling it as some deficiency in you, receive it as a disciplining gift of your father who's calling you on to something deeper than you've ever known, a faith that can even last a spiritual winter, a dark night of the soul. Receive it as an unexpected and maybe unwanted gift, but a gift that's going to lead you to maturity. I know that we all want to get to Exodus 2, Exodus 3. We want to get to the burning bush. We want to get to the Red Sea. That's what we came here for, isn't it? You know, we want the great Exodus story. You cannot get to that without sitting in Exodus 1 for a sustained time and letting it work on you. Because that I think is the human experience. I would say in my life there's a lot more Exodus 1 times than there are burning bush times. A lot more. So this text is for me. And I want to somehow find God. I want to find God in the stories of these midwives who experienced, must have experienced the profound absence of God and yet acted faithfully and yet feared God and not the king and yet took risks and showed courage, even when everything was, seemed to be moving in the opposite direction. We can let this text encourage us that God is there, and that even when we experience his absence, God's desire is to give us a much greater gift than our feelings, a much greater gift than experience, a much greater gift even than signs of his presence. The gift he offers us is himself, his own dear presence, as the hymn says, to cheer and to guide strength for today, Bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. You may be here now and just have a strong sense that God is present, and that's great. You may feel close to God. You may sense his presence and feel really connected to him through the worship, through the message. I want to encourage you to celebrate that. Thank God for that. Receive it as a gift. And at the same time, ask God in this moment to use the summertime of your faith to prepare you for the wintertime. To use the times when you feel close to him. To teach you not to depend on that. Not to build your faith on those feelings and experiences. But in Christ, in you, the hope of glory. And you may be here this morning and you just you feel like God is absent. And you feel like he's so far away, you can't sense him. Maybe you've been praying for something for a long time and it's gone unanswered. Maybe you've seen other people get the answered prayers and you haven't. You've seen other people get the miracle and you haven't had it. Other people just seem to be so close to God and they have these signs and experiences and that's just not your story. And as you sit here this morning, God just seems a billion miles away. Like there's a huge gulf between you and him and you don't even know how to start crossing that chasm. I want to ask you that if, if you're in that place and if you're experiencing the absence of God, I want to just ask you now to raise your hand. And I'd like to pray for you specifically that if you're here this morning, you just feel absent from God. You from God, God from you. I want to ask you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for anyone here right now who just can't connect with you, can't sense you. They just feel like they're in the middle of Exodus 1 and the rest of the story is not written. Father, everything in me wants to pray that they would feel your presence, but I don't want to pray that. Everything in me wants to pray they would have a sense, an emotional sense of your peace and your presence. And and God, if you would give them that gift, that's wonderful. But Lord, I want to pray that you would give them faith. Faith in the darkness. Faith in the absence. Faith when they cannot see you. And what's happening in their life seems to speak against your presence. I want to pray for faith, that you would pour faith into the lives of any person here who feels absent from you this morning, that they might be able to look up and at the deepest level of their being to see you, Jesus, to see that you are with them, that you are journeying with them, that you are the Exodus God and you will never leave them and you will never forsake them. I pray they would hear you saying to them this morning, I am holding on to you, the great I am holding on to you in the middle of the storm. I am holding on to you. And I pray they would hear it beneath their emotions, beneath their experiences, and beneath the signs and wonders, that they would hear it in their soul. In the very fiber of their being, they'd hear those words, and those words might give them comfort and assurance of your presence even now. We thank you, God, for what is true, and we speak that truth and name that truth that you are the God who is with us. Thank you, Jesus, that because you were forsaken, we will never be never be forsaken by god never be abandoned thank you for the gift of your presence even when we feel your absence in christ's name we pray amen this has been a teaching message from shore community church for more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on shore community church visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.